Acts chapter 6, in the middle of the text, uh, verse 8 is where we're going to pick up the story. I, uh, I'm not one to go to the theater very often. I, I don't, uh, I like movies, I just don't like going to movies, so there's a problem there. But I am really a sucker for true stories. You know, if there's some flick that's coming out that's just a representation of someone's life, I get really into that. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was watching on Saturday the NC2A Wrestling Championships. Anybody else into that? Or am I the only geek in the room? Okay. But I, I get so animated, I can't sit. I have to sort of get ready to wrestle. That's my, my old days. But I'm watching this thing, and I was having breakfast the next morning with a friend of mine who is kind of in the film business. And I said, somebody needs to do a, a dramatic film on Dan Gable's life. Anybody know the name Dan Gable? Some of you do. If you're a real man, I'm kidding. Um, Dan Gable, let me give you a little bit. Um, 181 and 1 in high school and college. Three high school championships, that's because they won't let you, in that day, in 64, they wouldn't let freshmen wrestle. So three high school championships, three college championships, and he lost the last bout in the finals his, his senior year. Driven, driven from that loss, he becomes world title champion and he actually wins the 72 Olympics. Leaves, I mean, he's won everything you can win. The Russians made it their mission to beat Dan Gable and they didn't beat him. Um, so he becomes a coach at Iowa. He wins 15 national titles, nine in a row. That can't even touch the record. The guy's story's amazing. And it made me think when I was reading the text that we have today, every once in a while, there's someone who shows up, an artist, an athlete, somebody's exceptional, and they just stand out compared to the rest of us. And the guy we're looking at today is Stephen. Um, there are many places the scripture kind of, for us, portrays men or women of such character. Uh, it, it makes me think of Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews, in making his case for faith, chapter 11 of Hebrews, we call it the Hall of Fame of Faith, because in listing for us examples of people who believed in, by faith in Christ, he starts laying out for us all these champions, you know, from Abraham and Moses and Noah and Sarah and prophets and kings, and all that stuff is in there, and it made me think of, well, if, if anyone should make that list, Stephen should. He's not listed in it, but he should be in Hebrews chapter 11 because he was that kind of man. I have a very difficult task today. We're, we're going to pick up the text in verse 8 of chapter 6, and we've got to go all the way to chapter 8 today. I don't have the time to read it, so let me just encourage you. Uh, go and read it because in this section, in this sermon that Stephen preaches, is basically a synopsis of the entire Old Testament. The narrative story from Genesis all the way, this is, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So let me give you kind of where we're going. This particular sermon and experience with Stephen tells us something special about him. And it, what it says to me is that this man lived like Jesus. He really did. And you're going to see it, I hope. And he talked like Jesus. Longest sermon, by the way, in this book of Acts. It is twice as long as Peter's exhortations. And he speaks like Jesus. And it's clear the way this story ends that he dies like Jesus. So there's something to be, I guess, gleaned from this story and narrative. We're going to try to do it uh, today. He is the very, Stephen is the very first um, Christian martyr, loses his life for the sake of Christ. He uh, is introduced to us, we saw it last week if you were here, uh, in the beginning of chapter 6, Stephen is, is one of the 
men who have been asked to kind of meet the need of the Hellenistic widows who are being neglected unintentionally, I believe, uh, from the food distribution of daily food. And so they raised up seven men. Stephen's one of the men to meet that need. That's all we know of him. There's a description in verse 5 about him. And then in verse 8 begins to tell us all you ever wanted to know about the character of the man Stephen. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to go through it in those three pieces, how Stephen lived like Jesus how he spoke like Jesus, how he died. Here's the first thing, how he lived like Jesus. Look at the text in verse 8 through verse 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those who from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never, never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For they have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us, i.e. the law. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that, like the face of an angel. Just to pick this apart, the description of Stephen starts with this, a man full of grace. We as uh, believers, at least in this church, we talk about grace all the time. Grace is the best word I ever heard. Grace is simply God's unmerited favor and kindness to us through Christ. It is just him giving us what we don't deserve. I'm a sinner. I deserve God's wrath and judgment. But in spite of what I deserve, I get Jesus. I get forgiveness. I get life eternal. That is grace as we know it. But grace doesn't just stop in what it does to me to pay for my sin. Grace changes me into a grace giver. Grace has two aspects to it. Just I'm the recipient of it. And then when I'm changed, guess what happens to me and other people? I treat other people with grace. I'm kind to others. I'm caring of others right? There's another aspect of of this grace, and it kind of predates this Christian narrative that we have, but in those times, it was used to describe the charm of one's words. So we would say it this way, um, that that guy is really winsome. He's charming. Stephen was everything. He was not only a full of receiving God's gracious gift, he was full of giving God's gracious gift, and when he talked, everyone knew. He was a gracious man. In fact, I think even the text kind of implies some special presence about him when it says that his face was that of an angel. Undeniably different. That was Stephen. We, we talk about this grace of God in two aspects always in our good news storytelling, and that is this, that God's grace doesn't just pay for our sins. It transforms our lives, amen? It does both. I'm saved from God's wrath and judgment, but I am being made new in the likeness of Christ every day. Every day being transformed. And that's happened to Stephen. He is a changed man. Clearly a man full of grace is a way to describe that. Look at what else it says. Stephen was also described as a man full of power. The text kind of fills in some blanks for us when it says that he was doing signs, great signs and wonders among the, the people which is actually a great description of Jesus. When, when Peter was preaching in Acts 2, we've seen this all, already, when he's describing Jesus of Nazareth, said he was a man attested to you by God 
with all signs and wonders. So you knew Jesus was from God because of the miraculous works that he was doing. In fact, when Jesus says to his disciples to wait before the Holy Spirit came, wait because when he comes, you'll receive power. And so Peter, uh, Stephen rather, was full of that power. Power for miracles, for sure, because that's what the text says. As we'll see in just a little bit in this one chapter of preaching, power to preach like power to preach. And you've heard me say this before, there is a, there's a mystery to preaching because God can just speak to multiple people in the precise way they need to hear through just one man. And, and Stephen was filled with the Spirit and the power is coming out, we'll see in his preaching, but in his confrontation, he's dealing with the elite of the elite, the leaders of Israel, and he's confronting them in their sin and their position. And we see his power and courage and persistence because we know how this is gonna end for him. He's standing there giving a testimony, but he's going to die for the testimony he gives. So there's power seen in Stephen's life. Look at verse 10 where it says, when they were arguing with him, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was described as this man having exceptional wisdom. There are a lot of nuances to a biblical word of wisdom, but the way it's used here is insight or discernment, the ability to take the word and apply it to a person's life. And Stephen applied it to the entire leadership of Israel right here in one simple chapter, full of wisdom. The totality of the text tells us and describes for us Stephen experiencing the same rejection as Jesus. Eerie similarities between the the experience of Christ and his suffering and Stephen. In fact, the texts almost echo each other. They couldn't handle Jesus' wisdom. They can't handle the argument of Stephen. Um, They accused Jesus of blasphemy, almost in the same categories of statements as they accused Stephen. He's against the law. He's against the words of God. And he's against God himself. This court, by the way, was even the same court that charged Jesus, same high priest that stood in control of the whole thing. The whole thing was a trumped-up charge then, and it is now. Similar experience. And so Stephen, we know, is as good as dead at this point. He's giving a discerning look at the need of the leaders of Israel. They have no interest in hearing him, and the conclusion is set. One last thing, we got it back at the verse 5 of chapter 6. When, when Stephen is selected as one of the men to meet the needs of the widows in the church for the daily distribution of food, he is described as a man full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. I suppose if there's a way to describe a man under the control of God, that would be it. He's in me. He's living out of me. He controls what I say and how I behave. He controls how I move into things and how I care for other people. He was one of those people who showed Christ was in him by the way he lived and the words he spoke. So I've got a question. That was a quick flyover of a man's life who we see only in two chapters in the scriptures and he's gone. But the description of him is overwhelmingly impressive. So here's the question. Why do people like this seem so rare? Do you know what I'm saying? Like if someone to sit down and write my narrative, Tim, full of anger and bitterness, resentment and selfishness. That'd be closer to real than you can believe. Would they say full of faith, power, grace? You know, I've got some thoughts on why it's, this is a rare man. Maybe it's a rare person in our culture. 
I think because it is so classically American to try so desperately to fit in with other people um, that if we were to be pressed to stand our ground for Christ, ah, it's a little expensive, too costly. If, and this is possibly true of our culture, we're so wrapped up in our needs and our desires and our wants that there is no room for King Jesus on my throne. I mean, I got one throne. There's one person in charge, and I'm so busy meeting my own needs. I am so about taking care of my own frustrations and my wants and my fears. I'm in charge. So King Jesus, you can be around, but you can't be on my throne. I'm on my throne. That's classically American. There's a possibility that I talk about grace. We talk about grace. We read grace, but we're so kind of programmed to a works-oriented world that we don't really live in the nature of grace. We don't really understand it. And so somebody couldn't say of us full of grace because I'm building ladders. I'm performing for God. Just think about that. So that's the description of how Stephen lived like Jesus. But here comes the accusations. Obviously, uh, because Stephen's influence made the people uncomfortable and because they tried to ramp up a debate with Stephen only to lose compared to his wisdom, they were totally shut down in that natural order of things. What do you do next? Oh, I know what you do next. Let's fabricate charges against him and put him on a phony trial and kill him. That's our plan because we can't argue him to our side. Let's just get rid of him. And so here are the charges to remind you again, verses 13 and 14. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place on the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. That's, that is the law. Now, to be fair, um, I don't think these guys are making this whole thing up. I think they got hearing problems. Like every person does without Christ. There is a war going on in the heart of man against God and his word. And so when you hear God's word, what does it do? The first thing it does is bother you and offend you because you can't sort out how he's reaching out to you with grace and freedom. You just know he's challenging all your affections and that's massively offensive. So, so they've heard They've heard Stephen speak. Stephen heard Jesus speak. And Jesus said these words, tear this temple down and I'll raise it in three days. And that's the same trumped up charge they went after Christ for. And I'm certain he said it. I'm certain he repeated it. And they thought he's talking about the temple. He's against us. And what Jesus was referring to was his body and his resurrection. His life given for sin. They couldn't perceive it. I'm certain that Stephen did what Jesus did. He repeated the Sermon on the Mount. Well, you know, that greatest sermon ever preached, the very first words we hear from Christ where he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you, he gets a series of those statements. Here's the law. Do not kill, but let me redefine the law if you hate, you're a murderer. He claims authority over Moses' law, over God's word, and says, let me interpret it for you. God was never just concerned with the outside. He wants your heart and your motives. So even if you don't raise your hand to strike another, he sees your hatred and calls it the same. That's what it is. And there's a series of those statements in there from Jesus. I'm certain Stephen repeated them. And in their ears, in their hard of hearing hearts, they said, well, he's against the law because Moses never said that. 
You get it? So they accuse him. And he basically makes the point that the law can't save anybody. Neither can going to the temple. And he's pointing out that the true temple of God is dwelling in people's hearts. We trust him, not a place. So the whole thing is just discombobulating the, the leader's minds. And because they're at war with God, they're at war with Stephen. And so they twist his words to say that he's against God's law and he's against the temple and he's against this worship. So before I tell you his response, um, and this is where we get into he speaks like Jesus. Let me just give you a category to put this sermon in. This is unlike most sermons you're going to read in the scriptures. Clearly different than everything else in Acts. Longest sermon in Acts. But in most of these sermons that we pick up, even Peter's, for example, Peter is is defending the charges or explaining the differences. And he's making a call to an unbeliever to come to Jesus. It's a wooing message. Well, let me just tell you, that is not at all what Stephen has in mind. Stephen's sermon is an indictment against Jewish leadership. And it isn't evangelistic. He's not going anywhere after he says it. And you can see it in the method of what he brings up to bear. For instance, um, there is no mention of Jesus till the very end of the sermon when he's using Jesus as another person they've rejected, one. And two, there is no mention of the resurrection anywhere in the sermon. And three, there's no call to repentance. The message isn't meant to woo them to their senses. It's meant to lay on them the indictment of God's charges that they're guilty. And that's all it was meant for. Stephen confronted these Jewish elite and their theology, and he went at the core of the problem, what they believed in and their rejection of God over and over again. And he does it to begin with, with three particular things. Um, And I would call it a a God plus scenario. Uh, They thought that the land they lived in made them special. They thought that the law they believed in made them special. And they believed that the temple they worshiped in made them special. Stephen goes after that in this one chapter in his sermon to say it has nothing to do with any of that. Okay? So, so let me try to make my point. Go to chapter 7. We're going to read a few verses. I'm going to use this as a Kickstarter to just tell you a few narratives, okay? He, he begins his sermon in verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? And he's regarding these charges against Stephen. Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Now get verse five. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And on and on it goes. Stop for a second. All Stephen has to do to make his point is stop right here. He throws in a bunch of illustrations, but he's already made his case. 
And the case that he's making is our relationship. They're, think the Jewish leader's mind. Their connection to Father Abraham, the father of faith in their religion. Abraham was no near, nowhere near the promised land when God was showing up and showing off in his life. Blessing is not connected to land. That's the point that he's making. And to make it even clearer and more undeniable, he throws in more illustrations to, to help us with that, with Jacob and the patriarchs and Joseph and Moses. But just to, to ask you a few questions and maybe tell a little stories. And I have to understand that when I say these stories without a, a lot of clear narrative, some of you might not know what's going on, and I apologize. There's a lot to do here. But Joseph, for example, shows up in our text. Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Joseph, the favored son. Joseph, the son that the brothers hated. Joseph, that the brothers wanted to get rid of. Hey, let's kill him. No, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. Guess where he ends up? Egypt. And guess what God does with him through a whole wild set of circumstances of being accused and being jailed and being used and growing in position and platform where he ends up being number two in the land. In fact, he's so in charge. Pharaoh says, I don't want to think about anything. You take care of everything. He makes all decisions, even to the point where there's a famine in the land and his people, God's people, Israel, need rescuing. Guess where they go? Egypt. Guess who rescues them? Joseph. So here's a question. Where did God bless Joseph? Go ahead and say it. Egypt, nowhere near the promised land. Let me add to that. In this narrative that, that Stephen begins to preach to these people, he then brings in Israel's blessing. And let me just take you to a specific part that I'm talking about. When God created a relationship with Abraham, he made a promise to make him a great nation. Look at the stars, Abraham. Count them if you can. That's how many descendants you'll have. And this is a man of 100 years old who has no kids. He had to believe the promise of God would show up, and he did. He believed. Guess where God delivered on his promise? Egypt. Not the promised land. 75 Jewish men and women went into Egypt and many, many years later, 400 years later, millions came out. A multitude. God delivered on his promise, not where you would think, but where he chose. He was faithful. Let me add to that because we have a continued story here with Moses rising up for the people. Moses is described in the scriptures as a savior redeemer type. He was called by God to lead the enslaved people of Israel out of bondage, right? Where did God raise up this deliverer, this redeemer, this savior? You can say it. Egypt. Clearly he did that. Where did God meet Moses and give him his word? Mount Sinai, not the promised land. Those are the stories that Stephen uses to make his points against the charges that somehow he's against what makes us special. The land makes us special. And so Stephen just throws down time and time again, no, God, every time God did something amazing, you were never home. The most miraculous events in all the scriptures happened in the desert, not in Canaan. You, you would think if you're a Hebrew here, you go, man, he's got a point. 
he's getting close to home here. This makes sense to us. But they couldn't hear it. Their hearts were darkened. Here's the punchline. We're going to back up in the narrative, read from 30 to 33. Again, Stephen talking. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness, speaking of Moses at Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire, in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to, to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Now this is the part you should remember. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is what? Holy ground. (laughs) This is his kind of drop the mic moment, okay? Your salvation doesn't come because this is holy ground. Wherever I meet my people is holy ground. Wherever I choose to show up is holy ground. Not this. You, You would think they'd get it. They didn't get it. So, Stephen continues. He not only deals with the land issue that they thought made them special, but he deals with the law issue that they trusted in. And here's what he said, that your law, the law, can't save anyone. If you have the time, please come back and read this. But let me give you just two particular points that that Stephen makes. And he he addresses the heart of the issue. The reason why the law can't can't save anybody because we we are crippled with a cancer of heart. There's a brokenness in the human soul, and this is what he says of it. Now, this is after Mount Sinai. This is after the oracles of God have been given to Moses. Look at verse 39. What does it say? Our fathers refused to obey. Stop. If God would show up here and say, I command you to, do you think you'd do it? (laughs) The answer is I, I want to. Yeah. But if we're true to form, if we're true to the human inclination, no. The garden, we can't get out of bliss without him saying, one, one thing before I leave, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Can't pull that off. It's too much. They refuse to obey the law because there's a heart issue. There's rebellion in their heart. Now watch this. This is what happens with rebellion. Rebellion just doesn't say no. It replaces. And there's a replacement problem going on here. It's verse, I don't know. um, Let's start in verse 41. This is how they responded to their refusal to believe and obey. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to an idol. And we're rejoicing at the work of their hands. You want a narrative on humankind? That's it. Make a bumper sticker out of that verse. We're building false gods everywhere and trusting in the work of our hands everywhere. And here, this is replacement theology was, I don't want to listen to God. Let me work on my own thing. When Moses stayed on the mountain too long, they got busy. And they built this calf and began to worship it. And I love verse 42 through 43. It's a quote from Amos, but it is a sarcastic, in my opinion, statement from God. Let me read it the way I want to read it, and you'll see it. Um, God speaking to Israel. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? Oh, house of Israel. Oh, no, of course you didn't because you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raman. You did it with a false god. You didn't bring it to me. You weren't worshiping me, remember? 
I can just, it's just dripping with a sarcastic response like, where was, where was I in your pursuits? I wasn't even a part of it. They had a heart problem. Rebellion, and they turned to replacement. And the point that Stephen is making, the law can't get it, and you know it can't get it because all the law can do is expose you as a needy person of which Christ can meet that need. Isn't what Paul says when he repeats this idea where he says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous by, the, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become what? Conscious of sin. Here's what the law does. It is the spotlight that I have a need. I'm crippled in my heart. God says something simple. Love your neighbor. How? How could I possibly love my neighbor if he does everything for me? Pleases me in all ways? If I become his God and he does everything to, to appease me, maybe, probably not. I can't, I can't follow the law. I can't do the law. The law exposes me as a lawbreaker. Therefore, I've got a problem I have to address. The, the problem is my heart. It's broken in sin. It won't respond to God. That's the condition it's in. So Stephen goes after the law that they think, if I just do, if I just add, if I just try, this collection of laws that I'm, I'm putting myself towards, God will give me the stamp of approval, and that's not, that's not the case. In fact, Stephen kind of makes this thought, if you, you think you're in because you have this land and law, you're wrong. He adds one more thought here, speaking of the temple. Verse 44, I'm going to jump to 48 after this, but he says, our fathers had a tent of witness in the wilderness. We have a tabernacle. God commanded the structure of this tabernacle where he would meet his people. And we moved around the desert for 40 years. And when David had his shot, he said, I'm going to build a place for God. And he never got quite done with it. So Solomon built a huge temple. But this is God's narrative about places for God. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. And what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? Done. You got your hope in the land and the law and the temple and none of it matters. Not a thing of it matters. Now, that would make you angry enough if you're a leader in Israel. But verses 51 through 53 probably pushed it over the top. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always, not sometimes, always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. All you do is reject God. That's all you've ever done is reject God. That's all that you can do is reject God. Now, they're angry, get me, but that did not push them to kill him. Watch what did, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Oh, when a speaker is speaking and people grind their teeth, it's a bad sign just to know it. And he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, this is the death sentence right here. Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. Done. End of story. He's got to go. You can't attribute to Jesus holiness. You can't call him God. He is not standing next to the Lord Almighty. He can't be. Kill him. And so what do they do? Like any adult man, plug your ears, start yelling, and run at your victim. That's what they did. Here's the point. If anything doesn't describe 
the total crippledness of the human heart, this engagement with these leaders does the best job I know. It's the same issue we have, total rejection. They rejected the examples in just this entire text. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. There's a theme of rejection in here, by the way. You should see Moses was rejected by Israel. The text tells us here they rejected the Holy Spirit. They rejected the prophets. They rejected John the Baptist, the one who was foretelling the coming of the righteous one. They rejected the righteous one. And Stephen might as well put in this text, and by the way, I know what you're going to do in two minutes. You're going to reject me because that's what you do. You have no ears for God. You are rejecting people. Now look at how he died. Verses 54 through 60, I don't have the time to, to read it, but just, just know this. He is, he is declaring his sight of the Lord at that very moment. They cry with a loud voice. They rush on him and they take stones and they throw at him big rocks until he's dead and he breathes no more. That's the end of Stephen. And he dies like Jesus in one particular way that while he is suffering um, unjustly, he is praying for his persecutors. Lord, don't hold this against them. Does it sound familiar? Should ring a bell. The very prayer of Christ when he is suffering as well. This is the reality. When, when Jesus is, uh, when Stephen rather is, is speaking, they are hearing in their minds the ultimate, ultimate blasphemy to equate Jesus with God. They, they could not stand. And what I love about this narrative, as Stephen is looking up or he's preparing to die, I don't know what this means, church, but it says that Jesus is standing. Everywhere else you see him in the throne room, he is sitting because he is finished, because he's Lord of all, because he's in control. He's standing when Stephen is dying. Maybe he's standing because he's, he is welcoming his son, and maybe he's getting a better look at this ultimate sacrifice. Maybe he is, I don't know, giving hearty approval to this kind of sacrifice that's willing to go all the way. I don't know, but this is something to note. I don't know what it means other than that somehow it's different in Jesus' mind for Stephen to live like Jesus, to talk like Jesus, and then ultimately to die like Jesus. So can I leave you with a couple thoughts? And I'm going to ask you a favor. I don't give very specific homework very often, but when you're driving home today, before you get out of the car, will you try to answer two questions? Like ask each other. Ask your wife, ask your kids, ask yourselves these questions. If somehow someone was writing a passage about your life, what would be on it? I would, you thought I was being sarcastic when I went through my narrative, Tim full of anger and bitterness. But if I'm being honest, if someone just wrote my story based on my worst moments, what would they say about you? Would, would they say, no, man, I've, I've seen them changed by Jesus, and every day they look more like him. Every time I get close to them, there's, better, there's a better expression of, of grace and favor than ever before. Here's the last question. Okay, Israel had a problem, okay, and I'm going to paraphrase it. Their problem was they thought they were in with God because of their land, their law, and their temple. Why do you think you're in? I go to church. That's why I'm in. I got, I got a Bible, and you know what? I even wrote notes a couple of times. Pay my taxes, mow my grass, good neighbor. My kids haven't killed anybody. I'm in because... Or I'm in because I don't. I've got a list of things I've never done or I won't do. And so therefore I'm in. God has to look at me differently because my actions 
save me. Why do you think you're in? Is your cry, Jesus alone, by faith alone, to grace alone? Would you add anything else to that? If you would, it's a Jesus plus thing and you've got to deal with it. Because when you add anything to Christ alone, you lose Christ alone. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this, this reminder in this narrative of what the gospel truly is for us. I pray um, that it has and will bear fruit. God, would you move in us? Would it be said of us that we look like we've been with Jesus? We pray in his name, amen.